Well, good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 109 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight, well, we're going to put on our tinfoil hats and unmask ourselves a conspiracy. And we hear that someone saw Mary Brandybuck on the grassy knoll. Dum dum dum. <laughs> Folks, we'll make our way over to the common room in a moment, but first, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with a man of the West who's just finished planting a high hay in his backyard, Alan Sisto. Is high hay an invasive species? It's not a native species. You're going to have to get HOA approval for that. <laughs> you know, and I keep my door locked at night, too. Got a problem with that? <laughs> All right, folks. In this episode, we're going to take a ferry ride. We'll look at a black bundle and take a bath with hobbits. Well, not literally. Well, I mean, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a family-friendly show. Well, they told me I could keep my swim trunks on. Thank goodness. <laughs> I think they ordered you to keep your swim trunks on. <laughs> I hope so. Well, folks, before this gets scarier than a Black Rider following you, we're going to move and on. And it's awfully close, yeah. <laughs> it is really close. We're going to move on to another philology fair. Yay! Huzzah. Still like that music. I still do. I still do. <laughs> it just puts a puts a little spring in my step every there time I go. hear it. There you go. Make it your ringtone. I, I should do that. Yeah, I should yeah, do, yeah. It's not yet, but it, it should be. There you go. Well, folks, today I'd like to talk about the etymology of a place name that we've heard mentioned before now, but we haven't really gotten an up-close look at until this chapter. Yeah. I'm speaking of the name of the river the Hobbits cross on the ferry at the beginning of this chapter, of course, the famous river Brandywine. Mm-hmm. Tolkien hints in the prologue that Brandywine is actually the Hobbit's name for a river called Baranduin in Sindarin. Now, the Sindarin name means long, gold-brown river, and that comes from the, the Sindarin elements Baran, meaning golden brown. Mm-hmm. And Duin, meaning large river, as you'll see in Anduin and all sorts of other river names across Middle-earth. Right. Well, if you read the prologue closely, or if you just say the names out loud, it's pretty clear (laughs) that Brandywine (laughs) isn't exactly a translation of Baranduin. It's just a corruption of it or a mispronunciation of it. Yeah. Tolkien actually refers in the prologue to the crossing of the Brandywine as the hobbits turned the name. He says they turned the name into that, not they translated the name into that. Right. So this means that rather than translating the Elvish name into the words that it meant, the hobbits just took the name and turned it into a name in their own Westron language that it sounded like. Right. But of course, Tolkien being Tolkien, he couldn't leave it at that. (laughs) Of Of course not. No. No. That wouldn't be fun. Not at all. But in Appendix F to the Lord of the Rings, he gives us the hobbits' names for the river in the actual Westron language, you know, the language that he translated into English. Mm Mm-hmm. And here's what he says. Actually, the older hobbit name was Brandanin, border water, which would have been more closely rendered by Marchborn, but by a jest that had become habitual, referring again to its color. At this time, the river was usually called Braldahim, heady ale. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And now uh, yeah. we can start to understand a little bit Tolkien's choice to translate or render the Westron name as Brandywine. It was a matter of both the sound of the word and a play on this hobbit pun calling the Brown River by the name of a brown alcoholic beverage. Uh Uh-huh. Now, even though we might be more used to calling the beverage in question simply brandy, not brandy wine, Tolkien knew, of course, course. because he seems to have known everything about language. Yeah. He knew that the name Brandy was originally a fine girl. What a good wife she would be. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I mean. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to have that song in my head all night now. Yes, you will. No, it was an abbreviation. The, the brandy was originally an abbreviation of the previous name of the spirit in English, which was Brandywine. Right. And that was a derivation from the Dutch word, I hope I get this right, 
Braun Divine, burnt or distilled wine. Right. And not surprisingly, according to the nomenclature, Dutch translations of the book did use Braun Divine for the name of the river. And why not? They already had the perfect name for it that met all the criteria <laughs> of Tolkien's complicated wordplay. Wasn't easy, but I guess that's what happens when you're the people who invented the word in the first place. Well, yeah. You get the perfect translation. Yep. So on that note, why don't we go ahead and start our discussion? I think that's a great idea. Uh, we'll go ahead and pick up near the very beginning. I'm going to go ahead and get that first reading done, and we'll start talking about uh, the, their little journey, their short, very short journey to the Brandywine itself. They turned down the ferry lane, which was straight and well-kept and edged with large whitewashed stones. In a hundred yards or so, it brought them to the riverbank, where there was a broad wooden landing stage. A large, flat ferry boat was moored beside it. The white bollards near the water's edge glimmered in the light of two lamps on high posts. Behind them, the mists in the flat fields were now above the hedges, but the water before them was dark, with only a few curling wisps like steam among the reeds by the bank. There seemed to be less fog on the further side. Mary led the pony over a gangway onto the ferry, and the others followed. Mary then pushed slowly off with a long pole. The brandywine flowed slow and broad before them. On the other side, the bank was steep, and up it a winding path climbed from the further landing. Lamps were twinkling there. Behind loomed up the buck hill, and out of it, through stray shrouds of mist, shone many round windows, yellow and red. They were the windows of Brandy Hall, the ancient home of the Brandy Bucks. There you go. Uh, why don't we start right at the very beginning with Mary? Yeah. Right away at the beginning of this chapter, recognizing that something is very odd. Yeah. But, you know, hey, let's get home safe first and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, he, he catches the priority. The priority is to get yep. to get to safe to, place. To get to safety and then we can we can get questions answered. Exactly. Um, it is only a short distance to the riverbank. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what, 100 yards? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a flat ferry boat moored there mm -hmm. ready to take folks across. Absolutely. I love the atmosphere, by the way. It's very descriptive. The mists mm -hmm. that, that are above the hedges behind them. Okay. Or I'm sorry. Yeah, behind them. They can see the... The mists are now receding, uh, but right. when they turn and look at the water, there's wisps of steam among the reeds by the bank. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very atmospheric, very, well, you know, it probably wouldn't be creepy if a black rider wasn't following you, but yeah, you know, and now it's creepy. It's, it, it would still be a little creepy, I think. You know, it probably. Just makes, the black rider certainly makes it more creepy. Oh, no doubt. Um, so they get on the ferry and they go, but you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I just have a little bit of advice for Frodo. Um, I, I hope he doesn't pay Mary. Don't even fix a price. You don't pay the ferryman until he gets you to the other side. <laughs> I'm just saying. Now, that's one I have not heard in... Oh, probably about 35 years. years? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Wow. Well, Krista Berg. Krista Berg. So I know we're not going to read the actual description of Brandy Hall. I kind of wish we could, but again, this... We're already selecting a lot of passages. There's in this so chapter. much good stuff in this chapter. There that really is. We are reading a lot of it. We kind of have to leave a few things. <laughs> we have to. Yeah, we have unread. to skip a paragraph here now and then. Yeah, <laughs> but we do get the uh, the foundation of Buckland. They're the oldest family in the Marish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's when they cross the border. Yeah, cross the border in. I think I looked this up. This was actually third age, twenty three forty. Oh wow! Uh, so seven forty of the Shire. Ago. Yeah, 740 of the Shire Reckoning. So this is a good 700 years ago. My goodness. No wonder they're so well established. Mm -hmm. And they were the old buck family then. I mean, how old are they now? That's true. If they were the old bucks then, <laughs> my goodness. 
Uh, they, they shouldn't be the brandy bucks. They should be the really old bucks. Yeah, right. They should be the ancient bucks. The ancient bucks. Before we get any further down that, I've got a little bit of ordinary for you. A Gorhendad, old bucks, the, the head of the old buck clan. Gorhendad is the modern Welsh of great grandfather, according to the nomenclature. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and Tolkien said, listen, that name needs to be left unchanged by translators. Uh, and in that entry, he tells us there's a reason why he gave the Bucklanders names from Welsh and points us to Appendix F. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because there's where we learn that, uh, and I'll quote from the appendix here, the names of the Bucklanders were different from those of the rest of the Shire. The folk of the Marish and their offshoot across the Brandywine were in many ways peculiar, as has been told. Yeah. It was from the former language of the Southern Stores, no doubt, that they inherited many of their very odd names. These I have usually left unaltered, for if queer now, they were queer in their own day. They had a style that we should perhaps feel vaguely to be Celtic. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, I like the idea that it's almost a small independent country. Kind of made me think this is like the Andorra of the Shire mm. or, you know, the, the Liechtenstein of Arnor. <laughs> a, a small... Uh, the San Marino s- of Middle Earth. Sim- <laughs> <laughs> a small yeah. autonomous or semi-autonomous... Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. A little yeah. enclave, you know. Yeah. Though I suppose it really isn't that. Well, well, I guess virtually know, really a small is, independent it? country. Virtually, yeah. you know. Virtually, yeah. And we see that, you know, the master Brandy Hall is, uh, well, we'll see that in the passage I'm about to read. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's sort of seen around these parts as um, as the head, you know, yeah. as, as a political as the leader. the authority, the, little, mm-hmm. the legitimate area authority, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, before we go to that passage that you just mentioned, there's one thing I wanted to touch on, which was Brandy Hall itself. Uh, they mm-hmm. described this... <laughs> I kept three large front doors, many mm-hmm. side doors, and about 100 windows. Now, I kind of thought that through. Okay, my living room might have four windows, but my bathroom doesn't have any, and my office might have one. I'm thinking if we even have an average of two windows per room, that's 50 rooms. And as we know mm-hmm. from, from uh, Bag End, not all the rooms face, you know, have a window. Not all the rooms are on that side of the, the hallway, let's say. Yeah. 50 rooms facing the slope of the hill. This is a massive home. This is a big place, yeah. And and you get the sense that yeah. it it started and they just kept on adding on to the so home. So was it the Winchester house? You yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of, the Winchester house. They just kept yeah. on building and building, except yeah. they, you know, they're hobbits and yeah. it's a hole, so they're burrowing and burrowing. What's My the goodness. uh What's the description of uh, a Brandy Hall from Chapter One? A, a regular Warren, a by all regular accounts. Regular Warren, by all accounts. That's and right. And that's referring more to the people, but it does kind of, it does kind of give yeah. you this idea of, you know, it does, doesn't it? You know, rabbits in a Warren, just like burrowing, <laughs> multiplying and burrowing. <laughs> you kind of feel like if somebody climbed up to the top of that hill and jumped a little too hard, the whole thing like just come crashing down. <laughs> like, like how yeah. much have they burrowed? Maybe right, too much. Yeah. The structural integrity of the of the earth above can't be yeah. that, that solid anymore. <laughs> they really have gone quite a bit. But and like the Winchester House, of course, there's stairways that lead nowhere, and there's you know there's a seance room and all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> I <would> hope not. <laughs> but you know the, the hobbits do love their uh, their I've ancestors. I've been there, by so the maybe. way. It's not nearly as spooky during the daytime as you think. Oh, I'm it's sure it's be. not. No, uh, during the daytime, nothing's really all that spooky. No, that's true. I mean, not not a not a house. No matter how weird it is. No matter how bizarre the architects right know, plans <laughs> maybe were. At, maybe at night it would be super spooky i watched so many tv shows about that place and it yeah. always seemed so so eerie and i finally went to san jose and i visited and of course you could only get a tour during the daytime sure except maybe in the month of october or something but oh that's yeah, not yeah. When we were there but uh yeah it's just like huh. 
Well, this is a house. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird house. <laughs> it's a weird house. Yeah, yeah I've never it's, been. I've never been. I'll have to check it out next time I get up to that area. But it's right in the middle of of, of town. It's like right next yeah. to a strip mall. It's not where you think it's going to be. <laughs> That's true. I'm anyway. sure it wasn't there when they first built it. But you know, no, no, no. Well, let me have you uh, read this next passage. I you mentioned a little bit of it earlier about uh, the authority of the master of the hall, and I think this is yeah. an interesting interesting section. It tells us a little bit uh, about just how different the people are here in Buckland. So go ahead and take that And they truly are. They are. The people in the Marish were friendly with the Bucklanders, and the authority of the master of the hall, as the head of the Brandybuck family was called, was still acknowledged by the farmers between Stock and Rushy. But most of the folk of the old shire regarded the Bucklanders as peculiar, half-foreigners, as it were. Though, as a matter of fact, they were not very different from the other hobbits of the Four Farthings, except in one point. They were fond of boats, and some of them could swim. Their land was originally unprotected from the east, but on that side they had built a hedge, the high hay. It had been planted many generations ago, and was now thick and tall, for it was constantly tended. It ran all the way from Brandywine Bridge, in a big loop curving away from the river, to Hay's End, where the Withywindle flowed out of the forest into the Brandywine, well over twenty miles from end to end. But of course it was not a complete protection. The forest drew close to the hedge in many places. The Bucklanders kept their doors locked after dark, and that also was not usual in the Shire. Boy, that is different, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, you, yeah. They're getting those, uh, you know, security doorbells with the cameras, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, they're, they're close to the edge of the wild, you know. They're they... worried about the, the porch pirates coming and taking their Christmas presents. <laughs> porch pirates. I've never heard that phrase before. You've no, you haven't? Yeah, no. No, it's... no. Anyway. <laughs> that's too funny. It is. But they're keeping their doors locked. Yeah, doors locked, and uh, they, they just don't have the the comfort and the safety that folks have, no. you know, in the Shire itself. It's true. Well, this is a frontier community, really. I mean, even mm-hmm. if it is a few hundred years old, is that uh, right up against the high hay? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, and I'm remembering what Pippin said in uh, A Shortcut to Mushrooms. He talked about Maggot. You know, even being, mm. you know, one of those folks near the border. He said, you know, people here yeah. have to be more on their guard. Yes, they and, do. Uh, and we do see that here with these folks. That's right. That's right. Well, you've got a little word nerdery for us, by the way, on the high hay, don't you? I do. Yeah. Uh, it's not high hay. It's not hay as in dried grass. <laughs> um, Hammond and Skull tell us that uh, in notes for the Dutch translator, Tolkien comments that hay is, of course, an archaic word for hedge, still yeah. frequent in place names. Yeah. Um, so it's not, like you said, it's not hey, send. Right. Uh, like, hey, send us money. <laughs> hey, mom, send us <laughs> or money. Or hey, send us dried, yeah, or send us dried right. grass or something like that. Yeah, it would work. Ascending of dried, yeah, it's hay's end, like the hay's end, end of the hay, the end of the high hedge. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I appreciate that because I'm sure, I think probably when I first read this as a, you know, as a You're imagining a wall old, of I'm hay. imagining a pile of hay. Yeah. A big wall of hay. I imagine, I think I imagined a wall of hay, like bales of hay stacked bales. up like bricks. Yeah, stacked bales. Yeah. And I'm yeah. thinking, well, why, that is kind of odd. And that, you, that's you would have to rustic. constantly tend it. You'd have to like replace them, every, you know, as they got, you know, completely wet and moldy. And yeah. yeah. That'd be weird. Not quite. <laughs> so yeah, no. Just a really cool tall hedge. I like yeah. that. Yeah. I like this thing about, I just want to make a little comment about this, this idea that they liked boats and some could swim. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. We, we get this idea that they're connected with the stores. 
and right. that this, you know their storish blood might be part of why you know they have these names that they do and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting that we know the stores to be river folk, right? From you know all the way back on the the banks of the Anduin and the Brandy Bucks. They probably moved to the area of the Brandywine because they just liked rivers. And, right. and now that, you know, it, it's not that they like rivers because they moved there. There probably is something in them, something in their storage heritage that makes them just like those places. Mm. So I just thought that's an, that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. It's not that, that they is. sort of developed this love of boats while they were there. It's something that was inherent in their nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. that makes sense. I can buy that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the next passage here uh, as they get across the river. The ferry boat moved slowly across the water. The Buckland shore drew nearer. Sam was the only member of the party who had not been over the river before. He had a strange feeling as the slow, gurgling stream slipped by. His old life lay behind in the mists. Dark adventure lay in front. He scratched his head and, for a moment, had a passing wish that Mr. Frodo could have gone on living quietly at Bag End. The four hobbits stepped off the ferry. Mary was tying it up, and Pippin was already leading the pony up the path, when Sam, who had been looking back, as if to take farewell of the shire, said in a hoarse whisper, Look back, Mr. Frodo. Do you see anything? On the far stage, under the distant lamps, they could just make out a figure. It looked like a dark black bundle left behind. But as they looked, it seemed to move and sway this way and that, as if searching the ground. It then crawled or went crouching back into the gloom beyond the lamps. "'What in the Shire is that?' exclaimed Mary. "'Something that is following us,' said Frodo. "'But don't ask any more now. Let's get away at once.' Good advice. Very good advice (laughs) under the circumstances, yeah. Yeah. I think the first thing that jumps out at me, and I'm assuming this probably for you as well, is is Sam's strange feeling and this sort of— Yeah. Yeah, this recognition this, this of this sense a, of this sense of crossing a border that he's got. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We talked about liminal mm-hmm. concepts uh, recently. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what that context was. Maybe it was a postscript, but uh, yeah, this is exactly been, yeah. one of those. But yeah, mm-hmm. lim- yeah, liminal. Uh, we talked about liminal language, liminal imagery, imagery of borders, right? And this idea of crossing a border or a threshold, and you definitely yeah. get that here. I mean, he's. It literally is saying he, you know, he feels like his old life lays behind him in the mists, and yeah. dark adventure is is ahead. There's definitely a, a crossing over here for Sam, mm-hmm. and I, I think he feels like this is, you know, maybe not permanent, but certainly a very long time that he's not going to be in the Shire. There's a uh, sense of point of no return to this. Yes, yeah, yeah, and really maybe is. not literally no return, but point of no return in the sense that he can't he can't go back and back out on this quest now. No, he, he can't to, back out now. No. Yeah. He has a little bit of wish that Frodo might have backed out, you know, right. that, that yeah, Frodo could exactly. get on living at Bag End. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's that's some of that finality you get. You kind of feel like, "Oh, well, well, here we go. This I'm is, committed now. I'm yeah. committed now." Yeah, and he's absolutely. still he's still among hobbits. I mean, he's this yeah. is yeah. This is Buckland, you know. Yeah, but, this is he's not crossing into Mordor here. Yeah. Right. But for Sam, you know, this is the farthest away from home he's ever been. Oh, no. <laughs> How did I know that was coming? <laughs> I just did. Oh, but, goodness. But it's true. I mean, it, it is yeah. true here that, you know, he's really feeling the weight of this crossing over. Yeah, he absolutely It's more is. than just water and boats that he's uncomfortable with here. Mm-hmm. It's the future. It's mm-hmm. the fate that lies before him that's unknown. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And then, of course, he, he spots the Nazgul behind him. Whoa. Mm. What Some a moment creepy, that is. Creepy language moving and swaying this way and that. Oh, crawled and crouching in the gloom 
Mm. The other thing we don't get is an explicit statement of the sniffing, but it, it's yeah, got to be yeah. doing it. I'm sure that's probably no, it's, what it's doing when it's on the yeah, ground. Yeah, we're too far away from it to hear the sniffing at right. this point. But, uh, you know, unless you really had a bad bad hay fever going on, you know. And you might it's a high hay fever. It's a <laughs> I set that up for you. <laughs> you totally I was like, did. here you go. Here's a slow right pitch over right plate, over the middle. Man. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> boom. You know, before we go on, I, I wanted to, to pull something here from Hammond and Skull. They give us some more insight here on this Black Rider, uh, and it's really worth bringing up. We've talked a lot about this uh, at various points in the last chapter or two. You might recall us mentioning uh, Tolkien's notes uh, that Christopher Tolkien mentions in The Hunt for the Ring, which is an Unfinished Tales. Mm-hmm. Well, those notes are actually from an unpublished manuscript in the Marquette Archives. And Hammond and Skull have kindly given us this lengthy snippet. As soon as the elves depart, Camul renews his hunt, and reaching the ridge above Woodhall, is aware that the ring has been there. Failing to find the bearer, and feeling that he is drawing away, he summons his companion by cries. He is aware of the general direction that the ring has taken, but not knowing of Frodo's rest in the wood, and believing him to have made straight eastwards, he and his companion ride over the fields. They visit Maggot while Frodo is still under the trees. Camul then makes a mistake, probably because he imagines the ring-bearer as some mighty man, strong and swift. He does not look near the farm, but sends his companion down Causeway towards Overborn, while he goes north along it towards the bridge. They tryst to return and meet one another at night, but do so just too late. Frodo crosses by ferry just before Camul arrives. His companion joins him soon after. Camul is now well aware that the ring has crossed the river, but the river is a barrier to his sense of its movement. Mm. I love that. I love knowing that Tolkien wrote all that stuff down. Yeah. Even though he knows he's not going to include that in the story yeah. itself. It's kind of his his notes to keep everything straight. Yeah. And, and for, for him to understand the motivation of the Wraith at this point. Right. Yeah. Right. And so we have confirmation that this is Kamul. Yep, we do. Uh, and we have confirmation that he was with one companion with at one that other. time, yep. as we knew uh, from those from the previous conversations about Unfinished Tales. I like that. I, I like that idea that he he makes a mistake because he imagines the ring bearer to be, you know, a yeah. mighty man. It's uh, the Sauron's forces continually misunderstand yeah. the good guys throughout this <laughs> that book. Do you know that they do? Yeah, and that's kind of what does them in. Yeah, that one little mistake. I mean, you realize just how close this was. Oh yeah. I mean, the so ferry. Close. You'd think that he would have left somebody at the ferry. That would have been <laughs> the first thing I would have done. If I want to catch somebody who I think is leaving the Shire, uh, I'm going to put somebody at the bridge and somebody at the ferry. Yeah. But, you know, that's just me. Maybe they just hadn't done enough recon. Maybe they didn't know. Yeah, that's true. They Maybe may not they didn't realize. know the ferry was there or who knows. Yeah, yeah. Have we talked well, they, about why why water is a barrier to the ring rates? You know, I'm not sure how much we have talked about it in the main episodes. I think we talked about that in one of the postscripts, but I don't recall uh, I do remember mentioning that Kamul was most sensitive, other than uh, the Witch King himself, to the presence of the ring, but right. that he was also the most sensitive to, to sunlight, right. uh, which was why he struggled in the daytime trying to follow Frodo. But yeah, the water thing is big. Um, we should probably we should probably talk more, but let's plan on talking yeah. more about that when we get to um, to Rivendell, when we get just before Rivendell, to the end of Book One, when. Uh, when Flight they cross. to the Ford, yeah. yeah we'll we'll definitely happen. have to look into it by then, and I think we're going to have to dig pretty deep to find answers to that. But it's all in it's all in Hunt for the Ring. Uh, but is it's, it there? You're right. It, I think it is. Okay. They talk about the fear of water, and and yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and well, the, the problems they have getting over the Gray Flood and things like that. Yeah. Right. That's right. Well, folks, don't worry. We will be talking about that soon. Yeah. So yeah. Spoilers. 
<laughs> Spoilers, they're going to make it to Rivendell, folks, and the ring rates yeah. are going to get, well, you've seen it. Yeah, you have. You have. Or read it. Maybe both. Hopefully, hopefully both, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or at least hopefully read minimum. But, right. <laughs> but before we move on, I want to I want to notate something. We're not really reading this part about um, the geography, so to speak, of this area. But there's a line here about Mary saying they can go 10 miles north, the horses, to Brandywine mm-hmm. Bridge, or they could theoretically yeah. swim, though that's pretty unlikely. You found something interesting about that, didn't you, regarding that 10 miles, huh? Yeah, in Return of the Shadow, which is volume six of History of Middle-Earth, Christopher Tolkien points out a a change that's quite interesting, actually. Mm -hmm. In editions released before 2004, Mary actually says it's 20 miles to the bridge. Yeah. And that's because the length of the High Hay, which is the north-south span of Buckland, was originally, uh, and I'm quoting here, something over 40 miles from end to end. When Tolkien changed that to 20 miles from end to end, which is what it ended up in the finished text, Right. He missed this, this. this statement from, from Mary. He missed correcting yeah. this. And Christopher actually says in Return of the Shadow, he says, it is in fact an error which my father never observed. When the length of Buckland from north to south was reduced, Mary's estimate of the distance of the bridge from the ferry should have been changed commensurately. Yes, it should. Well, leave it to Christopher to find those. He's spectacular yeah. at catching those, you know, tiny little things that, that make a difference. But mm-hmm. it's and interesting that that didn't get about this early. so late. I know, I know, 2004. And we've talked about, I think going back to our episodes where we talked about, you know, the the history of the text and uh, the history of the composition and things like that. We talked about the fact that errors have been found in the text, Mm -hmm. you know, since its publication. And the the text we have now is, um, you know, the... The, the best one we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, it's definitive, but you yeah. never know. There's all, there right. might you always be know. something. Yeah. Right. So it's interesting to think of uh, to think of the way that Tolkien's work continues to change even after his death. And of course, that that change in editions before 2004 that means that the books that uh, that Jackson and the team were working on when they made the films, they that book did say 20 miles. Mm-hmm. So it makes it sense did. that in that film, Mary says Mary says it's 20 miles. 20 miles. Yeah. Right. He was right at that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in, yep. the, in the sense that they were uh, looking at the text that was available to them at the time. But, right, uh, yeah. Christopher had already corrected it. But, you know, even then, even if it's only 10 miles to the bridge and 10 miles back, that's a 20-mile trip for a horse. At speed, that is less than an hour. So clearly the uh, the black riders are not in a hurry at this mm. point. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that's not far. I mean, yeah. like we find out later, they might have been stopped at the bridge. But let's be, be honest, yeah. if they didn't want to be stopped, they wouldn't have been stopped. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Yeah, we will. We will. Uh, fortunately, like any good hobbit, they're going to get a second supper, aren't they? <laughs> I was going to say, they wouldn't <laughs> be hobbits without at least suggesting a second supper. <laughs> second breakfast, that's great. But really, having a second supper second is Second supper is really what you want. That's where it's yeah. at. Yeah. Second so breakfast they, is so third age. Second, second dinner is where it's at, folks. That's right. That is absolutely right. Well, why not both? <laughs> right. Why not? <laughs> There you go. <laughs> because metabolism. Because okay. metabolism. That's right. And hobbits, as we know, tend to be a little round in the stomach. They do. You know, and they have friendly faces, not necessarily lovely to look at. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm starting to get that myself, really. I'm starting to understand. I've, I've got a friendly face. Not so yeah. much lovely to look at. <laughs> when, when you ask your wife in the morning, how do I look, honey? And she says, you look friendly. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much, and I'm lucky if I even get the friendly. I mean, in the morning, I was going to say, yeah, you don't look friendly very often. 
No, oh, wow, wow. No, you that's... are friendly. I mean, you just, no, you know. I just don't got, look friendly. You've just got that intimidating demeanor. I look fair and feel foul. Is that, or I look <laughs> foul and feel fair? Is that, Some, is that something like that? Something like that. <laughs> well, that's very fitting for the man of the West. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, no servant um, of the enemy. That's right. Well, we're going to get to Crick Hollow, <laughs> which, by the way, would be a fascinating listing on, uh, you know, on Redfin. I'd love to see that. You know, it's like remote country house surrounded by a lovely hedge, mm-hmm. uh, two miles off the lane. And sure enough, that's about what it is, right? It's, uh, it's as much it, like a hole as it can. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> a large yeah. round door. Yeah. I, I love this. I mean, we're not going to read that description of how they get there, but the, the main road of Buckland, mm-hmm. uh, it runs to the east of Brandy Hall, and that's why they pass it on their left. But they, they go up north for, for just a half mile. It's not far at all. Right. But then they follow a lane for at least two more miles. So it's yeah. it's pretty isolated. Up and down uh, into the country. Yeah. I mean, it says yeah, Frodo had chosen really it because remote. it was in an out-of-the-way corner. Yeah, this is like were, where celebrities would go and, and hang out, yeah. you know? It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, it makes sense. He wants a place where people aren't yeah, going to notice him being gone for a while. Yeah. That's right. That's you right. You don't want it to be like my house where there's, you know, people right next door on top of you. No. <laughs> Says the guy who doesn't live in Southern California where people really do live on top of each other. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I feel I mean, like I, my- I know you probably don't have a Texas-sized lot like, uh, you know, most of us would imagine, but- I do not. I do not. I do not have like a ranch or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have you don't have any cattle. Is that what nope. you're telling me? I thought nope. everybody in Texas had to have no cattle. cattle, no goats, no chickens, no. none of that stuff. I can stand in my side yard, touching my house, and with my other arm, touch the house next to me. <laughs> okay, well, it's not quite that so, bad for me, but it's close. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's California for you, though. But uh, yeah. uh, anyway, we digress, but we, we always do. do. It's a great little house. I love the uh, the architecture. Right? I mean, the idea that it's. Uh, long and low mm-hmm. and, and there's no second story. So it, it kind of sounds at first like it's a ranch house. Um, but then they say <laughs> it's got a roof of turf. So maybe it's not. Maybe not quite. I mean, that's I what mean, I'm picturing, right? You know, it's the sure, idea. Yeah. Of, long, uh, yeah, a long and low wide yeah. house. Yes. On, no second on a story. That's, of a, land. Yeah. that's a rambler or a ranch yeah. house. You know, I mean, yeah. if you, you know, look up your architecture, but uh uh, roof of turf takes it right out of that category. It does, yeah. I grew up in a ranch house. It did not have a roof of turf. It probably didn't have round windows or a large round door for that. No, matter. it didn't. But I do like. But nowadays it, they do have those houses that people actually yeah. build. You know, in the to real world, like to look like holes. hobbit holes. It's probably Isn't something that interesting? like one of those. I, I just imagine that the hinging on the door would be really difficult to. I mean, to, physics I mean, I guess, wise, that would be a problem. I guess you've got to get it. You got to get one hinge right in the middle, right? We never really see that. Yeah, Disgusting or you'd have work. to have a maybe not really truly circular. You'd have maybe. to have some sort of, um, you know, like a, a square off one of the edges. Maybe it's a round it. doorway, but the door itself is actually. I don't, I don't know. know. That would be that would be hard to do. Any architects listening, folks? How would you do a? Or or you could put a a, a pin down the middle and have it rotate like a. Um, a swinging door, like, yeah. <laughs> like the secret passageway. And... Like, yeah, exactly. Or, or, or like those doors in the office buildings, you know, with the spinning, uh, what do you call that? When, when you know, the people oh, walk like in. like a revolving door? A revolving door. That's what I'm yeah. thinking. But just I'm two imagining the secret four. doorway behind the bookcase and like, yeah. uh, or like behind the fireplace in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or something. <laughs> I've always thought that, you know, the door, you know, the, the, the brass doorknob is right in the exact middle of the door. And that's cute and it looks great. It's the it's not dumbest very ergonomic. Thing. Yeah. No. I mean, you're going to be having to put a lot more leverage on that than if you mm-hmm. just put it to the left. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're going to have to really pull on that doorknob because you're not getting the leverage that you should get. 
but hey, that's just me, you know. The the physics of Hobbit doors, folks. Any architects listening, if you can help us figure out <laughs> how it makes sense. Help us with that, man. How would you do it if you were an architect? Or builders, yeah. I mean, how do yeah. you build the hinges on a on a round door? Yeah. That's going to be an interesting and thing. And put so. a doorknob right in the middle and have it actually, have you actually open be able to get door. enough leverage to open it. Right. That's, Maybe that's the door's not, the not on a hinge. Of... Maybe you just pop the whole thing out like a cookie jar lid. <laughs> And, and you then just, you put it back. You just put it back when you enter. put the yeah. door back. It got a couple of big handles on the back, and you just pull it back into place. Like like a, like the like a top of a barrel. Just mm-hmm. shove it back in. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Okay. Well, maybe not. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go ahead and have you pick up before we get even further down this road of digression, which of course is always interesting. Probably for the best, though, that we get Probably. back on track. Yeah. As they walked up the green path from the gate, no light was visible. The windows were dark and shuttered. Frodo knocked on the door, and Fatty Bulger opened it. A friendly light streamed out. They slipped in quickly and shut themselves in the light inside. They were in a wide hall, with doors on either side. In front of them, a passage ran back down the middle of the house. Well, what do you think of it? asked Mary, coming up the passage. We have done our best in a short time to make it look like home. After all, Fatty and I only got here with the last cartload yesterday. Frodo looked round. It did look like home. Many of his own favorite things, or Bilbo's things, they reminded him sharply of him in their new setting, were arranged as nearly as possible as they had been at Bag End. It was a pleasant, comfortable, welcoming place, and he found himself wishing that he was really coming here to settle down in quiet retirement. Mm. It seemed unfair to have put his friends to all this trouble, and he wondered again how he was going to break the news to them that he must leave them so soon, indeed at once. Yet that would have to be done that very night, before they all went to bed. It's delightful, he said with an effort. Mm. I hardly feel that I've moved at all. Mm. I like that he said with an effort. You know, I mean, it's clear Mm. that's, that's not quite his thinking. You know, right now he's... I mean, he is thinking that he's hardly moved at all, but his his heart is heavy, you know, with this yeah. idea that he's going to have to tell them all, and just in the next hour or two, you know, yeah, not much yeah, time. I mean, it, it you know, it it looks enough like home that he could feel that he hasn't oh. moved at all, and he's you know, he's being honest about that part of it, but yeah, yeah. his heart is just as you say, so heavy with with the knowledge yeah. that he's going to be leaving immediately, and and leaving his friends at least, and so he friends. thinks, and having put them to all this trouble, I love that. Yeah, I love that that kind of bit of inner monologue in Frodo. You know, he's yeah. he's thinking about his friends. He's thinking about the effect this has on his friends. He I mean, you you get a little bit of you sense a little bit of guilt here that he's been lying You're to right. his friends and they've yeah. done all this work for him and and, and a lot of selflessness. He's really yeah. he's he's concerned about them. He's not concerned yeah. about himself right now. I mean, yeah, he admits that it would be nice if I was going to get to settle here, but, sure, yeah. but his main concern is is what he's put his friends through and what he's going to have to put them through in telling them that he's about to leave. Yeah. And certainly, you know, we talked about this in our recent questions after nightfall. You know, he must be feeling afraid right now, even though oh yeah, yeah, it, it's not mentioned here. I think I think the word is used a, a couple of pages on. So he's definitely mm-hmm. feeling afraid. But but you're right. When we get his thoughts, he's really thinking only about his friends. Yeah, and that's and, and there's like a there's a beautiful that. selflessness to that. I also love the effort because you know when you realize that Mary did know, you know, well they all mm-hmm. knew, but I mean Mary full well knew. We're going through all this effort for something that, I mean, maybe he didn't know they were going to leave the next day. I think he did. I think, uh, you know, he told Sam and we'll find out later that, that Sam got that information to Mary. So, 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, but they've done this effort. No, and they're not well. surprised when he's about to start talking about it. You know, they, no, not at all. Pippin has that little moment with Mary, like he's about to <laughs> say it. You yeah, know? that's right. Here it comes. <laughs> yeah. It, but I, but I love the effort that they went through, knowing mm-hmm. this is short term. They didn't come and say, you know what, we're going to be leaving in a little bit anyway. So let's just leave the boxes intact, and you know nobody needs to pull anything out. Would have been easy right. to do that, but it would have been instead, very easy to just say, "Oh, you know what? Sorry, Frodo, we haven't had yeah. a chance to unpack anything yet." Yeah, piece of cake to do that, yeah. but they go through the effort. They want Frodo to feel at home, as comfortable as he can. Yeah, yeah, for for what you know, maybe just a single night. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love that about Mary and and about Fatty too, who you know gets the short end of the stick because he doesn't leave and. You know, he's a he's a scaredy cat when it comes to the old forest. But, you know, he's an he important thinks he's partner. getting the better end of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but. he does. Yes, he does. When he's when he's looking up at Mary and Pippin when they come back, I'm sure he won't feel like he's gotten the better end of the deal. <laughs> You've grown a I'm foot. Sure, yeah, I'm sure he'd like to grow. Yeah. Uh, I would probably make him look a little less uh, chubby. A little less fatty. <laughs> a little less fatty. But apparently he's comfortable with that name. I mean, Mary says, you know, after all, Fatty and I only got here with the last cartload yesterday. And you don't hear Fredegar said, hey, stop calling me Fatty. Right. You know, it's, uh, he's all right with it. But he seems to be okay with it. He's, he's he, confident. He, he knows who he is. He's, he's, he's a hobbit. A, he's got a positive self-image. That's right. Absolutely. As he should. No body shame. His last here. name is Bulger, which is very close to Bulger. It seems like he's probably... Isn't it? Seems like yeah. he's probably doomed to be uh, <laughs> to be a, a little heavier big. set. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think there is some some ordinary on that. I don't remember, but uh, I don't think we have it in our notes on that. It was I don't have too, it in my notes, and I kind of wish line. I did. Yeah, Bulger, Bulger. Maybe we'll pull that up for uh, for, for another episode down the line. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, many of his own favorite things. Uh, that made me think, of course, since we've often talked about the beginning as a very good place to start. That made me think, of course, of, a few of my these are a things. few of his favorite things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't want to put that song in anybody's head, but uh, too anyway. late. Yeah, too late indeed. Anyway, just great section, and thanks for reading that. I thought that was um, just a really telling piece about Frodo's inner monologue there mm-hmm. and his his priorities, but uh, his 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 selflessness and his his yeah. just kind of quiet resignation and not, resignation is not the right word. He's it's acceptance. You know, there's kind of an Anglo-Saxon acceptance of what he yeah. has to do. Absolutely, and he yeah. knows he's got to do it soon. He's got to tell them tonight, mm-hmm. uh, and even though he doesn't want to do that. Yeah, But before that, we get some fun. Uh, oh, I'm going to yeah. pick up just a, a couple lines into the next paragraph, and we'll go from there. All right. So after they 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 realize there's a, a bath, and, and Pippin's just absolutely thrilled, and, and Frodo <laughs> says, oh, which order shall we go in, said Frodo? Eldest first or quickest first? Well, you'll be last either way, Master Peregrine. <laughs> Trust me to arrange things better than that, said Mary. We can't begin life at Crickhollow with a quarrel over baths. In that room, there are three tubs and a copper full of boiling water. There are also towels, mats, and soap. Get inside and be quick. Mary and Fatty went into the kitchen on the other side of the passage and busied themselves with the final preparations for a late supper. Snatches of competing songs came from the bathroom, mixed with the sound of splashing and wallowing. The voice of Pippin was suddenly lifted up above the others in one of Bilbo's favorite bath songs. And I'm going to go ahead and read the first stanza, and then we'll um, I'll have somebody else read the second one. But sing hey for the bath at close of day that washes the weary mud away. A loon is he that will not sing. Oh, water hot is a noble thing. Oh, water is fair that leaps on high in a fountain white beneath the sky. But never did fountain sound so sweet as splashing hot water with my feet. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that laugh at the end. It's He's just tickled himself. so great. Brilliant. He's having so much fun with it. Oh, yeah, it really is. I would have had him read the whole thing, but I 
you know, again, we, we need to really <laughs> and that's, that's like a whole there. track on that audio collection, isn't it? Is the, is it the is poem, wonderful. So, yeah. He yeah. reads, yeah, he starts out, it's just the voice of Pippin is the line that starts and it reads all the way through all four stanzas. Yeah. Such energy, but he uh, has so much fun with it. He it's, does, it's and it's so fun to hear. It just—it's it's a thrill to to hear his voice. Of you course, get a little bit time, of his sense but, of humor, enjoying mm-hmm. himself with that one. Yeah, just a real simple, like you said, you know, he's a a hobbit in all but size, and this is the kind of thing that that, that humors him, and and I love yeah. it. Really yeah. neat stuff. It's a great poem. I mean, I, it is. It really I know is. We don't, isn't it? Probably don't want to spend too too much time on it because it's just a bath song. There's not like a ton of thematic stuff there, but <laughs> no, but I'm always no. I'm always fond of how much information Tolkien squeezes into his verse. And there's oh, yeah, just so absolutely. much sensory description here. Oh, In fact, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he probably hits on all five senses. I mean you've got you've got sweet as the sound of falling rain. Right. You've Which is that's a, the stanza by the way that we that the that the movie that then converted into um, into that the drinking the beer song, song, right? Yeah. 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 We've got well, we've got a hint of smell with water hot that smokes and steams. Right. We've got uh, a, a bit of feel with water hot mm-hmm. and wa- water cold. Yeah. We've got a hint of taste down a thirsty with the throat. Beer. You know, yeah. better is beer if drink we lack. Um, and we've even got the sight in the, the yeah. passage that Professor Tolkien just read. Water is fair yeah. that leaps on high. So, yeah. yeah, you've got all the senses here. You're experiencing water with all the senses. And it's all just That's rich. Pat to celebrate rich. the the greatness of the feel of hot water on your body, you know, just to yeah. all this to say, you know what, the best thing of all these is just feeling hot water in the bath. Yeah, so yeah. cool. It really is, and it it would be. I mean, in a, in a culture where being able to get a hot bath is probably not something you get to do, you know, twice a day. Yeah, that's probably true. Getting a bath, a nice warm bath at the end of day, is a, a wonderful thing. That is, a, yeah, it's a wonderful feel, and it, it is a luxury, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, I do love though the uh, the little insight we get into their priorities with that third stanza about, look, if we're thirsty, cold water, that's great, but you know, if we only have so much water, I'd rather have beer and get the water yep. hot, <laughs> pour yep. down my back. Yeah, <laughs> can't blame them, can't blame them. But uh, uh, I, I love that this was all prepared for them ahead of time. That Mary's arranged this. There's three mm-hmm. tubs, plenty of hot water, towels, soap, etc. Um, Mary's a, a good planner. Thing. Mary He's, is a planner. We'll yep. see more of that, won't we? Yes, we will. And and Mary and Pippin are, or, I'm sorry, Mary and Pippin, Mary and Fatty are even preparing dinner while they're having their baths. Yeah. Are these guys like the best friends ever or what? I know, I know. Such great, <laughs> such mean, great friends. On. I mean, just great hosts, great friends. So when I come out there for TechSmoot, you're going to let me take a bath and you're going to create, you're going to make a nice dinner for me while I'm doing that? Sure. I'll do exactly that. <laughs> if there's a black rider following you, I might feel oh, sorry okay. enough for you to do that. Well, yeah. Okay. I mean, these guys have had a pretty hard day. I know. They have, and I'm I'm just kidding about that. When you arrive, you're going to tell me how bad your flight was, and I'm going to say, but there wasn't a black rider. That's right. So, That's right. So, so quit no your dinner. complaining. That's Buck right. Up. Quit your, quit your <laughs> whining there, Sisto. That's right. <laughs> you're lucky I don't serve you mushrooms, is what you're going to tell me. But uh, mm, Mushrooms would be delicious. Oh, hush. For me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So Pippin, of course, splashing water. He's the youngster. He's the one out there. You know, he's, he's probably rolling the towel into a whip and snapping his friend's uh, backsides, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, <it's, laughs> I mean, that's exactly what you see him doing, huh? You totally. Know? Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. tomfoolery. Yeah. Total. Total tomfoolery. There's so much water in the air that I'm coming in the kitchen to finish. Yeah, to finish exactly. drying off. That's great. <laughs> that's brilliant stuff. So much fun. 
And then we get Mary with this interesting word, and I know you've got some word nerdery on locks for you us, don't you? Know. Locks, said Mary, looking in. You know <laughs> I that? do. It's such a cool word, isn't it? It is, isn't um, it? Hammond and Skull actually just describe it as an expression of surprise, possibly mm-hmm. a deformation of Lord as an exclamation. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I ended up looking this up online in some of the online dictionaries available. Uh, and yeah. uh, one of them, OxfordDictionaries.com, the, the free one on the internet, tells us that it's an exclamation, particularly among Cockneys, that expresses ah, surprise, yeah. awe, or consternation. Okay. But I also have access to the Oxford English Dictionary online. The uh, OED, yeah. Yes, yes, which is a great resource for this kind of thing. That actually confirms that the etymology is either a vulgar form of lack, as in alas and alack, ah, or okay. is a deformation of Lord, the exclamation Lord. Mm-hmm. But the Oxford English Dictionary also lists forms like lock a mercy and lock a daisy, which those mm. definitely seem like more like they're derived from Lord, especially lock right. a mercy. Lock you know? a mercy, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like it would be Lord of mercy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like Lord have mercy. Mm-hmm. So this is another example of one of those uh, one of those words that's probably a, a corruption or a reduction yeah. of, um, you know, a, a, a religious word, a word with, yeah. you know, with religious significance, significance. But that has been secularized. But it doesn't have that. And, and right, been, exactly. And that's been all but forgotten. We talked about some of those uh, a few episodes ago. Yeah, Sam had a couple. Um, mm-hmm. Lord bless you. you know, right, Lord bless that's me, right. Said. Yeah. And we were trying to figure out, you know, what, what, what's the context there? Why do we, why do we have a reference to lore, yeah. uh, to Lord uh, in, um, you know, in, in Third Age Middle Earth? But yeah. This yeah. one's a little bit more obscure, but it's still, if, it you, if you know the etymology, you get it there. And it's, it's just interesting. It, you know, it, mm-hmm. it kind of makes the, makes the Hobbit's dialogue so much more conversational than what it we'll does. see later on. Yeah, it really does. And it's, I'm a little surprised to hear Mary saying it. That sounds more, almost like more like something you would hear Sam say, especially knowing that Locks has a uh, kind of a Cockney background. Mm, uh, yeah, good point. Sam yeah. does seem to be the, the uh, kind of the more working class. More yeah. working class. Yeah. And then, you know. Mary, I'm not sure yet. I mean, he's he's a Bucklander, so he's probably got a little bit of that Celtic background. Yeah, you'd um, think. But yeah. Anyway, just interesting stuff. Yeah, very. What a, what a scene though. What a scene. I mean, Frodo's That's coming great. out wearing a towel, drying his hair. Man, <laughs> yeah. I can't even I can't even get dry in there. The humidity's 120%. <laughs> Pippin's throwing water everywhere. Yeah. I gotta come in here. And the stone floor was swimming. Swimming. <laughs> yep. Oh goodness. You ought to mop all that up before you get anything to eat, Peregrine. That's right. That's right. Do your job. Pippin. I just, I love the way they just, they just dig on each other all the time. It's so great. Oh, they do. So, such they're good just friends. guys. They're just a bunch of yeah. young guys who are friends and yeah. Yeah. I mean, Frodo, maybe not so young. I mean, I feel some sympathy for him. He's what? He's 51 now? Yeah. But that's and, like, no, you know, 30 something in Hobbit years. <laughs> well, then I'm younger than I thought. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and take this, uh, this supper passage? I love this one. This is great right. stuff. They had supper in the kitchen, on a table near the fire. I suppose you three won't want mushrooms again, said Fredegar without much hope. (laughs) Yes, we shall, cried Pippin. They're mine, said Frodo, given to me by Mrs. Maggot, a queen among farmers' wives. Take your greedy hands away and I'll serve them. Hobbits have a passion for mushrooms, surpassing even the greediest likings of big people a fact which partly explains young Frodo's long expeditions to the renowned fields of the Marish and the wrath of the injured maggot. Uh-huh. On this occasion, there was plenty for all, even according to Hobbit standards. There were also many other things to follow, and when they had finished, even Fatty Bulger heaved a sigh of content. They pushed back the table and drew chairs round the fire. 
We'll clear up later, said Mary. Now, tell me all about it. I guess that you have been having adventures, which was not quite fair without me. I want a full account, and most of all, I want to know what was the matter with old Maggot, and why he spoke to me like that. He sounded almost as if he was scared, if that is possible. Hmm. Which apparently it is. Apparently. That's first a fascinating mushrooms. little passage. Yeah, but first mushrooms. That's right. <laughs> because it, we because get a hobbits. little bit of explanation that yeah, hobbits value them do. very highly. Apparently surpassing even the greediest likings of big people. That is saying something right there. I know. I know. Because big people can be pretty darn can greedy. Can be pretty greedy. That's not just talking about the greediest likings of mushrooms on behalf of big people. That's no. like the greediest likings of big people in general. Which Hobbits and, and covet wow. mushrooms. Yeah, yeah that, that is definitely their weak point. Their we Achilles can be quite, heel, if you will. We can be quite greedy. Well, I mean, you know, they'll beat a teenage hobbit for stealing them. <laughs> That's right. Let's not forget that. That's right. Which I suppose I still, we still can't quite excuse, but maybe we can understand well, no. why Maggot was so upset. Apparently so. <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly sure I'd be upset if somebody stole my, my bacon, let's say. Yeah. No. No, I don't think I'd beat anybody for it. You wouldn't it, beat anybody for it. But yeah, that is quite a passion. And it really is interesting to see that that hobbits, who we always think of as being you know, these wonderful, peaceable, loving, friendly people. Yeah. <laughs> they are until they're you like, put mushrooms in front of them. They're like wild animals. <laughs> they just turn into savages. <laughs> yeah. I can just see them like in a, a controlled setting, like in a, some sort of psychology test and the straight jackets and, you know, white white walled rooms and one way mirrors and. You put a basket of mushrooms out there, and they just turn into animals. Turn into animals. Crazed animals drooling. And, I'm, yeah. I, I'm imagining the scene from Peter Jackson's Fellowship where Frodo meets Bilbo and Rivendell. And Bilbo, and, yeah. and Bilbo turns really scary for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm imagining that, but over <laughs> mushrooms. Like, and, and 17 hobbits doing that, like, all at once. Yeah, just turning into just like. <laughs> there descending be only one. on a basket yeah. of mushrooms like a scene from a zombie apocalypse movie yeah, exactly there's like limbs being thrown out of the pile there's, <laughs> yeah you know. there's caps flying everywhere <laughs> it's it's you know it's almost a little bit like uh, uh that scene in the movie you know uh, meat's back on the menu boys oh, yeah, yeah. they're just That's ripping right. they're the just limbs like and... tearing into some some poor orc yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, there's a digression I didn't need. That's just a visual that's not quite satisfying. But I don't think I'll eat mushrooms again now. No, probably not. Not, not with the, not. the visual comparison to orc flesh. No, no, not at all. I'm sure as much as I don't like mushrooms, I'm sure they taste better than orc flesh. But I'm sure, I'm sure they do. <laughs> Only Gollum knows for sure. Yeah. I would be more willing to eat them, let's just put it that way. <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah. I, I do love their well, let's priorities. See, we got some mushrooms and we got some urukai over flesh, here. Which, which, like, <laughs> what do you want, the, Mr. Sisto? Well, I don't know. Is the urukai medium rare? How's it cooked? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not cooked at all? I'll take the mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing worse than orc flesh is raw orc flesh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's reel it back in. Yeah, I, I do love the priorities that we see here. You know, they know they, they've got to talk about all this stuff. I mean, even Mary wants to know more, right? He wants to know why Maggot was scared, why something weird is going on. Yeah, we saw that at the beginning of the chapter. He wanted to know more. But their priority Mm -hmm. was to sit down and have dinner first, Mm -hmm. and then they're going to have this conversation. Yeah. You know, they'll they'll push back the table, draw their chairs up. They're going to worry about the dishes later, and they're going to go ahead and chat. Yeah. And I think it's not so much that they just want to have dinner first. I think they need that. I think as hobbits, mm-hmm. they need that. Yeah. It's a that grounding. To, yeah. yeah, exactly. They need that return to normalcy, that grounding you yeah. said. The um, bath and the meal. I mean, mm-hmm. boy, does 
it, it refreshes you in a way that nothing else does. Yeah. Absolutely. I know it's kind of like that, you know, that feeling after, you know, a long flight. I know not too long ago you you flew overseas. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. You know, after a really mm-hmm. long, many hours flight, you're sitting on an airplane. There's just that that feeling of you just kind of want to clean yourself up, have a meal. You just kind of want to feel human again. You want to feel civilized Yeah, you really again. do. Yeah. And I had the good fortune of having almost the entire section of myself. Remember that picture I That's posted? That's right. I remember that picture. That was the yeah. weirdest thing ever. You, having were comfy. Like, you, you were able to spread out. There were like eight rows and there were four of us. It was the most bizarre thing. Like first class, fully full. Premium economy, fully full. Wow. <laughs> and I don't know how I got lucky, but that was sure you had nice. You had a seat for each one of your peanuts. Seriously, you're not kidding. <laughs> it was crazy. But anyway, we digress. We do. <laughs> but yeah, even then, even with that flight where I could literally lay out on a row of three seats and act like it was my own personal couch and and watch whichever screen I wanted. <laughs> you know, do I watch that movie or this movie? Yeah. Just plug my headphones into the right one for 12 hours. When I got back, I still felt just grungy. I wanted a, yeah. a nice hot yeah. bath and a good meal because, like we said, that grounds you. Mm-hmm. That brings you back to to be able to talk about these serious so t- matters. Brings you, yeah, it brings you back yeah. to normal, you know, kind of kind of resets you, gets you ready for, okay, now I'm ready to face whatever's next. Exactly, exactly. It really does. And that's when they start to talk. Uh, you know, Pippin tells them, oh, we've all been scared. He mentions the Black Riders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Pippin is the one who gives the full account. I do love that when Pippin says, we've all been scared, Frodo just stares at the fire. He doesn't say anything. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have to say he's scared. Pippin said it and Frodo doesn't say anything. So we know mm-hmm. oh, just yeah. how scared he must be. Yeah, yeah. And Frodo, he knows more of the nature yeah. of what's chasing yeah. him than Pippin does. So his yep. fear is is a a fear of the known. Mm, yes. Knowing how powerful it is. And Pippin's is more a fear of the unknown and not right. realizing how powerful that is. Yeah. Right. So he gives the whole tale from all the way from the time they left Hobbiton. Uh, and the whole time, Frodo just remained silent. Even Sam was, you know, joining in now and then with, the, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Yep, that's it, or wow, or, you know, that whatever, sporting odds and exclamations. But, Frodo just sat there entirely silent, and that's where I'm going to go ahead and pick up. I should think you were making it all up, said Mary, if I had not seen that black shape on the landing stage and heard the queer sound in Maggot's voice. What do you make of it all, Frodo? Cousin Frodo's been very close, said Pippin, but the time has come for him to open out. So far, we've been given nothing more to go on than Father Maggot's guess that it has something to do with old Bilbo's treasure. That was only a guess, said Frodo hastily. Maggot does not know anything. Old Maggot is a shrewd fellow, said Mary. A lot goes on behind his round face that does not come out in his talk. I've heard that he used to go into the old forest at one time, and he has the reputation of knowing a good many strange things. But you can at least tell us, Frodo, whether you think his guess good or bad. I think, answered Frodo slowly, that it was a good guess as far as it goes. There is a connection with Bilbo's old adventures, and the riders are looking, or perhaps one ought to say searching, for him or for me. I also fear, if you want to know, that it is no joke at all, and that I am not safe here or anywhere else. He looked round at the windows and walls as if he was afraid they would suddenly give way. <laughs> mm-hmm. My goodness, that the, the fear he must be in mm-hmm. experiencing now, realizing he is not safe at all. Mm-hmm. He knows that it's only ten miles to the bridge. Yeah. By this point, certainly an hour has passed. They've had their bath, they've had their dinner. At any moment they could hear the Black Riders come charging. Yep. You know, if they just knew where they were. Yeah. 
If yeah, if they did, but yeah, Frodo knows just how much danger he's in, and he's and he knows how scared he is, and he just doesn't. I I think he's trying to play the strong leader here a bit by mm-hmm. not by yeah. not you know trying to keep it keep it together, you know, mm-hmm. keep it together for the others. You know, the younger ones yeah. don't really. They like you said a moment ago, Pippin's fear is a fear of the unknown. The younger hobbits really don't understand what they're up against. No, Frodo is withholding information because maybe because he knows just how terrified they'll be. Yeah. Well, and he he is supposed to keep everything as secret as he can. Remember, Gandalf true. told That's him true. not to say anything, and he even told Sam, you know, make sure you don't. That's say true. Anything. It's easy to forget at this point that yes, they they know everything. <laughs> yeah. Mary and Pippin know everything, but Frodo doesn't know they know. It's everything. easy to forget that. Indeed, yeah. we forgot that mm-hmm. in a uh, uh, last chapter of the chapter before, as they were wandering around. We kept speculating, you know, about Pippin's thinking on this. We had <laughs> forgotten. Well, yeah, he oh, knows. Oh, yeah, that's actually. true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he may, again, he doesn't know all the details, but uh, he certainly knows more than than we were remembering. Right. He knew. We, yeah, <laughs> we never give Pippin enough credit. Well, no, does anyone? You know, he's uh, he's the he's the one everybody likes to laugh at. But he's smarter than he's smarter yeah. than he looks. Smarter than he yeah. sounds. Yes, he is. Even if he has a fool of a tool. <laughs> Even if his head would be a perfect tool to open an unopenable dwarf door. Exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> Pippin referring to Frodo as cousin Frodo to Mary. I, I wanted to touch on that. We all know, of course, there's a lot of relations here. We're we're not going to go into the family trees enough <laughs> because that try describing a family tree on an audio format only. That's really hard to do. But um, we're going to take Hammond and Skull at their word when they say Pippin is both Frodo's second and third cousin, and in both cases uh, he's once removed. Mary is his first, second, and third cousin once removed in each case. Yeah, that's that's not weird at all. Well, that's why hobbits are so fond of family trees. They need to be. They need to be, right. In order to understand who sits where at weddings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. First, second, and third cousin. That that was a little tricky for me to wrap my arms around. That is a, <laughs> that is a really weird one. I'm going mean, to, I'm really, I looked at the trees, but I still don't get it, but I'm, I'm not good at those things. I mean, I do have some family who are cousins two ways. Yes. Like just through like really when you if you go back far enough, you can find distant relations that are cousins yeah. two ways. With hobbits, yeah. it seems like it's the norm. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> Surprised they don't all have like hemophilia or something like that. And of course, yes, and, you know, price. the Brandy Bucks and the Tukes and the Baggins is, you know, they are all the aristocracy of, of Hobbiton. Right. So, of course, that's exactly right. Of course, they're a little all more related. inbred than the rest. <laughs> oh, goodness. Frodo's, Frodo's hasty comment about Maggot not knowing anything. Boy, he jumped out there, didn't he? He'd been he re- silent yeah. this whole time, right? The yeah. whole time Pippin's telling the story, he says nothing. But then when they mention that, nasty. Yeah. A little bit of uh, protesting too much on that one, uh, you know, trying yeah, to throw them off the scent. Yeah. <laughs> Methinks the Hobbit doth protest too much. Yes, indeed he does. Uh, I love Mary's comment about Old Maggot. I know we talked about that before. I think back when we talked about Maggot in, in the previous chapter about a lot going on behind his round face, uh, the reputation yeah. of knowing a good many strange things. But it's good to hear that in context uh, and, and for us to, to recognize that Mary, Mary has some insight here. Yeah, he does. And and we talked a little bit in, in one of our postscripts recently about just some of the might have beans in uh, that are in Return to the Shadow on mm-hmm. th- things that were rejected. So they're not yeah. they're yeah. not at play here. But some of Tolkien's ideas on just how oh yeah just how special Maggot might have been. That in, he might have been kin to Tom Bombadil. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's something. 
Exactly. Might have been kin, might have been old friends, you know. Yeah. Whatever Tom was, Maggot might have been the same thing. Well, we don't even know what Tom is in, well, in no. the Finnish conception. But uh, yeah, really fascinating that Maggot could have been somebody really, really special. Yeah. And, and you know, Frodo obviously acknowledges there's a connection. I love, by mm-hmm. the way, the uh, – first of all, I actually love the way connection is spelled because that's not the American spelling X, for connection. Yeah. yeah. C-O-N-N-E-X-I-O-N. That's yeah. fascinating. but. Uh, but but really what I, I wanted to point out was the fact that he corrects himself when he says that the writers are looking for him or for me. And he changes that mm-hmm. to, one ought to say, searching. Yeah. He realizes they're not looking in the way you and I would look with, with the visual sense, that, but there is a search. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a very good catch. Yeah. And he, he speaks openly about, you know, how afraid he is. Yeah. I fear yeah. that this is no joke at all. He's not safe. Yeah. Not so. anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, that head on a swivel sort of moment again, he's looking around everywhere, Mm -hmm. realizing, you know, this could, this could be the end. Every moment could be the end. Yeah. But uh, speaking of every moment could be the end. Let me have you read the next little bit. All right. The others looked at him in silence and exchanged meaning glances among themselves. It's coming out in a minute, whispered Pippin to Mary. Mary nodded. And I'm going to stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How's that for a cliffhanger, folks? Guess that means you'll just have to come back next week when Frodo can't believe his ears and we finish unmasking this conspiracy in the second half of, well, a conspiracy unmasked. That's two weak segues in a row, Alan. Do you need my help with these? (laughs) Mm, uh, Yeah, we might have to go back to you writing these. I don't know. (laughs) Folks, before we'll talk about it. Folks, before we get to Barlaman's bag, we want to give you a quick reminder about the fellowship of the podcast. That's our family of supporters over at Patreon. We are Mm -hmm. very close to our next goal of setting up a Discord server, which will give our patrons a chance to listen in live during a recording. They'll have plenty of opportunity to laugh at our slip-ups and our bad jokes, not to mention get a sneak peek in an upcoming episode. That's right. You know, in fact, we might even be there now. We just... We just weren't there then now when we recorded this episode a few weeks ago. I know we've kind of cracked that joke a few times, but it always reminds me of that bit in Hitchhiker's Guide about the the major problem in time travel being grammar and the uh, Time Traveler's Handbook of 1001 Tense Formations. Oh, yes, yes. That's a a brilliant little sidebar. I love that. Almost as many tense formations as ancient Greek. Yeah, just about. (laughs) You're right. Well, folks, you all will certainly enjoy laughing at us on Discord. I, I know I would. Um, I, I laugh at Sean all the time and I don't even need discord for that, but you know, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, be sure to visit patreon.com slash prancing pony pod. Uh, don't forget you'll get access to exclusive content, uh, full length bonus episodes every quarter, short postscripts to each of our chapter based episodes. When you join at the gift of Gondor level or higher. And if you're in the market for a new Tolkien book, please check out the official library pages at our website, the prancing pony We've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the Tolkien books we've ever mentioned on the show. And if you wouldn't mind posting a review on iTunes, we'd be really grateful for that. Mm-hmm. That increases our visibility. That means more new listeners, more great questions for Barliman. And we are getting a ton of great questions. So please Boy, keep them we? coming, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, more discussion on social media and a more vibrant Tolkien community. Absolutely. And please don't forget to share us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, wherever you hang out and might find Tolkien fans. Please tell them about our show. We really think that they'll enjoy the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we know that their involvement makes the show better. So. And, you know, we've got easy-to-use uh, share buttons on our website for each episode. We you do. Can very we easily do. go to our website to a particular episode, click a button. You can share it to social media. It's uh, yep. it's pretty handy. So Piece of cake, really. We make it easy, folks. 
piece of mushroom pie or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So one last quick thing before we see if Bartlett has anything in his bag for us. Well, we know he does. So I guess one last thing before we see what he has. Uh, it's come to our attention that we might have engaged in a little a little hyperbole, shall we say, about Tolkien 2019. <laughs> Sean? That's one way to put it. And uh, yeah, a hat tip yeah. to listener Becky D., who reminded us that calling Tolkien 2019 the largest fan gathering was a bit, well, inaccurate. Yeah. See, it turns out there are annual gatherings in a few other countries whose attendance is quite a bit more in some cases. Um, it may be more accurate to say that it's the largest gathering that the Tolkien Society has put on. Uh, that, that's kind of the context, if I remember correctly, uh, about what Sean Gunner told us uh, in the 100th episode that we we aired. Uh, he talked about it being one of the largest Tolkien gatherings. I, I don't remember his exact words, but I think it was in the context of what the Tolkien Society has put on. And if that's the case, then uh, it is going to be a big event, uh, but it is certainly not the largest. And we want to apologize for that, particularly to our overseas listeners who we accidentally slighted with that claim. So, mea culpa. Absolutely. Yeah. With that, though, it is time to see what old Bartleman has in the mailbag for us. So, Sean? Okay. Well, we'll start today with something from our old friend Chris B. in Illinois. Chris mm -hmm. is a longtime listener and patron of the show. He's been on the podcast before. He's actually joined us for questions after nightfall. In fact, yeah, if you times. remember our last questions after nightfall, episode 106, we added a little question in at the end of that due to technical difficulties. Oh, yeah, that yeah. was actually Chris's question. That's right. And of course, his appearance in the North Wing back in episode 104 was a, a real favorite moment for both of us and for several of you out there based on the feedback we received. Yeah, got a, got a ton of feedback on that. So thank you, folks. Yeah. But Chris wrote in with not so much a question, but an observation about the first few chapters of The Lord of the Rings. It's kind of a long one, but I'm going to ask Alan to read it in its entirety because it's, a, it's just a wonderful sentiment and it's just really beautifully worded. I think everybody needs to hear this. So, Alan? I agree. So Chris says, I wanted to take a moment to appreciate you putting into words something that I've felt for 40 years without having the words to express it. In episode 103, you commented about the quietness of Tolkien's prose as he described the lovely heartland of the Shire. As we proceed forward through the books, there are many such places of refuge. The open-air hall near Woodhall. The Chetwood. A description of land near the Weather Hills as the sun sets. Holland, Lorien, and Athelion are the ones that spring to my mind. I had occasion to rewatch the movies with sick children this week, and the absence of these quiet moments came to me as something missing in a way that has soured me on the otherwise monumental work of film adaptation. Even the eeriness of the way in which the black writers are introduced is minimized in a way that detracts from the creeping sense of dread. Tolkien's love of the green world of his imagination shines through, like the light that Sam sees shining through Frodo, and is the secret heartbeat of the entire story, or, perhaps more aptly, the softly heard music of Eru coming through into the world for those who have ears to hear. I sorrow for those to whom Tolkien's description of the landscape are something to be slogged through, and hope to bring some focus onto this lovely world that is itself a character that has a part in all the stories, from the Song of the Ainur through the crowning of Elisar and the departure of the Ringbearers. I guess this isn't a question, so much as a reflection on something the two of you inspired me to think about a bit more consciously than I've done for a while. It's also meant as thanks and appreciation to you for all the work you do to build a special community around the Prancing Pony podcast. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that, Chris. And you are yeah. absolutely welcome. Um, yeah. 
I remember us talking a few episodes ago about uh, the Arcadia. That was Hammond and Skull's mm. word for yeah, for all that yeah. description of nature that that you know that really idyllic uh, natural yeah. beauty of Middle Earth, uh, and the way that sort of gives us a before picture. You know, something to kind of remind us what the hobbits are fighting for here. That's right. The Shire as Arcadia as this idyllic nature. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. a wonderful passage. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think Chris has really put the significance of that into into words much better than we ever did. I, I, I think uh, really well said. And I told Chris yeah. that his emails to us always give us uh, food for thought and nourishment for the spirit as well. Mm. Um, I don't think I could offer a better comment on, you know, on it than that here. So thank you, Chris. Yeah, I know I couldn't. And I think our listeners will truly enjoy his reflection on this. So Chris, thank you once again. Yes, indeed. Well, now I'd like to move on to a question that has been asked by several listeners in different ways, <laughs> all following our episodes on Three is Company. Ah, oh, okay. The question in all of its various forms is about the ringwraiths and about their primary weapon. Which First is of all, fear. That's right. <laughs> and surprise. And surprise. And an almost fanatical uh, devotion to Sauron. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nobody expected that Spanish Inquisition bit. No, they didn't. <laughs> so first of all, Jason H. asked, why was the gaffer not crippled with fear when being questioned by the Black Rider? I recall in Unfinished Tales that even when the wraiths are riding uncloaked and therefore invisible, an uncontrollable and inexplicable fear and dread struck everyone they passed. The text says they were a terror to all living things they passed near, and also that Rumor of darkness and a dread of men knew not what went before them. Some of the spookiest moments of the books for me are, for example, in Return of the King, when, before we even see the Nazgul, we know they are present because the men of Minas Tirith are stricken by an inexplicable fear. So I always wondered, Jason says, how, when the hobbits hear the Black Rider questioning the gaffer, that he just answers their questions. He is described as shrill and put out, uh, but to me, it seems that, like he handled the encounter like a champ. <laughs> Can the Nazgul control the level of dread and menace that they exude? And in this corner, weighing in at 127 pounds, the gaffer. The gaffer. <laughs> anyway, uh, listener Jeff LaSala made a, a similar comment as an observation on Facebook. Uh, it, it wasn't focusing so much on the fear that the Nazgul could generate, but on the fact that the gaffer was able to maintain his composure and his hobbitish civility while talking to the wraith. He says... I love the dichotomy of the gaffer's words, his civility set against the nature of the Nazgul. The hobbits are so innocent, and their politeness is present even when they're wary or weirded out by strange big folk. Here he is casually referring to one of the worst villains of the Third Age as a mere customer. Farmer Maggot uses the same word later. It's very charming. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. It's, it it's is, a good yeah, observation. Absolutely. And finally, Arthur H. wrote to us saying, Nazgul are bad dudes. <laughs> <laughs> even 2,000 years ago, only Arthur, <laughs> only Arthur. Yeah. Uh, even 2,000 years ago, when their master was barely marsh gas, they were bad donkey enough to take over Minas Ithil. Oh man! And an old hobbit seems to intimidate one, like Maggot faced down a Nazgul. Any self-respecting Nazgul would have ripped the impertinent Furfoot's head off. <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. It's always so, oh. so wonderful. Uh, continuing on, but they yeah. keep backing off. There's something about the Shire that doesn't exist in Bree or other places. Arthur says it's not the presence of civilization. Bree is civilized. Mm -hmm. And it's not that their master is weak, because Sauron was even weaker before. Mm. I don't know what it is, the nature of hobbits, the proximity of Bombadil, but this may mm. be worth considering, Arthur says. 
Yeah. So, uh, wow. Great questions, yeah. folks. Some really interesting thoughts on what's going on here. Certainly. Alan, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Sure, I will. We've, we've talked previously about the fact that fear is the primary weapon of the Nazgul, right ahead of surprise and <laughs> a few other things. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to have such a hard time not going back to that well, but we'll, we'll try not to. But no, fear really is their, their primary weapon. Yeah. Uh, and in Tolkien's comments to the, um, uh, this, was the, this is his comments about the Zimmerman film treatment in 1958, so it's letter 210. He says of the Nazgul, their peril is almost entirely due to the unreasoning fear which they inspire, like ghosts. They have no great physical power against the fearless, but what they have and the fear that they inspire is enormously increased in darkness. Just like the Winchester house. <laughs> <laughs> well done, sir. Well Sorry, done. I, just, I was like, no, that's... I, I know we're talking about darkness later on in this episode. Where is it? And there it is. And there it is. Congratulations, uh, sir. Thank you. Um, and, and we do know you're, you're right about all that. And we do know that when the Nazgul first rode out from Minas Morgul, they oh. were in full terror mode. I mean, that's right. Remember, yeah. the first thing they did when they rode out was to attack and capture us, Gilead. And mm -hmm. in a few chapters, when we get to the Council of Elrond, we'll see Boromir describe that battle. He's going to say, A power was there that we have not felt before. Some said that it could be seen like a great black horseman, a dark shadow under the moon. Wherever he came, a madness filled our foes, but fear fell on our boldest, so that horse and man gave way and fled. Mm. So it may seem strange that if they had that effect on the fighting men of Gondor, that they wouldn't have mm -hmm. that effect everywhere they went in the Shire. But there is a clue in the text as to why. Jason quoted some passages from The Hunt for the Ring in Unfinished Tales when he mentioned the Ringwraiths being a terror to all living things and the dread of men knew not what that went before them. But in the paragraph just before that, there's a blink-and-you-miss-it sentence that says, Therefore, when Osgiliath was taken and the bridge broken, Sauron stayed the assault, and the Nazgul were ordered to begin the search for the ring. But Sauron did not underesteem the powers and vigilance of the wise, and the Nazgul were commanded to act as secretly as they could. Now, that's Exhibit A. Mm -hmm. uh, exhibit B comes a little later on in the section in the other versions of the story. There's a version B which actually gives a little more of the Witch King's motivation by saying that the Shire was too large for a violent onslaught, such as he had made on the Stewars, he must use as much stealth and as little terror as he could, and yet also guard the eastern borders. Therefore, he sent some of the riders into the Shire with orders to disperse while traversing it. And of these, Camul was to find Hobbiton, where Baggins lived, according to Saruman's papers. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. mm -hmm. the answer to Jason's question of, can the Nazgul control the level of dread and menace that they exude, the answer is yes, they can. Yeah. And in this particular yep. case, they had the levels turned all the way down because they were commanded to. Their goal was to find yeah. Baggins, not to terrorize the inhabitants of the Shire. That's right. I mean, these may go to 11, but they were only set to one. <laughs> <laughs> you know? This one goes to 11. That's right. <laughs> but we're going to set it at one. Um, or if I could butcher another pop culture reference, these fear phasers weren't even set to stun. Oh, well done. <laughs> well so, done. Yeah, there you go. There you go. They weren't even I've set got more. to they weren't even set to intimidate. No, or, they or really cow weren't. or menace. <laughs> intimidate cow or menace. None of okay. the above. So, right. So that's clear enough. Now I do. They were set still... to wink wink, nudge nudge. That's what they were set to. Apparently. <laughs> there you go. Very nice. 
always comes back to Monty Python. It does always, man. It does. I know. It's just, it's just such, it's just such a deep well. It really Although is. Although some have argued not deep enough and we need to yeah, find well, another one. <laughs> yeah, some have argued that 109 episodes in, we probably should stop tapping that well. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to go catch up on some other classic comedy no, show. No, I think we just need to apologize to those folks and move on. <laughs> probably so. <laughs> I mean, really, probably. let's be honest. Yeah. But uh, so that's clear enough. I do still yeah, like some yeah. of the speculations that, that we get from Jeff and Arthur. You know, the, the idea that yeah. maybe there's something... Well, especially as Arthur says, the, the idea that maybe there's something special about hobbits or the Shire that protects them somewhat. Yeah, Jeff talked about the gaffer and maggot being charmingly dismissive of the Nazgul. And then uh-huh. Arthur actually speculated if there's, you know, there's something there that's protecting them. Uh, mm-hmm. Is it something in hobbit nature or is it something about Bombadil's proximity? That's interesting. I, I have to admit, I'm not sure I can attribute any of this to hobbit nature. I mean, aside from their own sheltered naivete. I mean, don't get me wrong. That is a good thing in this case, but it's not really something you can take credit for. Not the way I see it, but I may be wrong. What about Tom? I, I don't know. I, I'm not really inclined to give much credit to Tom Bombadil here. I, I, I just, no. I kind of feel like, from what we see later when we meet him, his influence seems so concentrated on his own lands, yeah. and and I just don't really see his influence stretching beyond that. Um. I do think maybe Hobbit nature could have something to do with it, although maybe not so much something to take credit for as just something that's sort of intrinsic to them that works in their favor here. You know, the prologue says that Hobbits are difficult to daunt, and it says that they're dowdy at bay. So Mm, we know that they're not easily intimidated. That's true. I, I have to think that especially... In their own shire, as they like to think of it, although Gildor yeah. would disagree, um, they <laughs> probably feel pretty secure. I mean, they've yeah, been, they're on home turf and yeah, this exactly. is their place. Exactly. Any, any bad guy, even if he's a really bad guy, is only just one bad guy. And in, there's a whole lot their, of hobbits around. In their land, yeah. And they right, have right. been in this bubble, shielded from the, the worst perils the Third Age has to offer. And they don't yeah, really understand yeah. just how dangerous the world is beyond That's those That's that sheltered naivete, right. Yeah, exactly. And they may think they, they know how dangerous it is. But as we'll see, especially in the no. next part of this chapter, they're they're often very confused about what's really <laughs> scary and what's not. But here's where I think that's interesting. I remember talking to Jeff about this on our Facebook page when he made this comment. And another listener, Kirsten, compared the gaffer's reaction to a child's. And she, mm. the way she said it was really neat. She said that, you know, the, the hobbits are experiencing something new and unfamiliar, the Nazgul. And they're, all they can do is mentally categorize that new thing into sort of a, a familiar box, you know. Right. And that's what leads to funny things like them categorizing one of the scariest bad guys of the third age as a funny customer. <laughs> yeah. Um, a little, mm. It's, it's funny. And, and it, but it also, yeah, it, is. It, it kind of sort of betrays a, you know, a, a, not a complete understanding of the situation. It's but true. Kirsten also said that both hobbits and children are shielded through their naivete from the scariness of the outside world. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's an excellent observation. And I commented on Facebook back to her and Jeff that I do think their innocence in this way does kind of protect them. I, I, I oh, think yeah. that I think that if ordinary hobbits like the gaffer and maggot, if they understood how dangerous the ring rates really are, I think they would be more scared. Oh, and yeah. and I think that if hobbits in general were more worldly and more aware of what goes on beyond their borders, I, I I'm not sure that Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin would be able uh, to become the heroes that they become, the heroes that, mm. that they need to be. Um, 
to succeed in the War of the Ring. You know, there's just yeah. so many of those Hobbit characteristics of, you know, being able to kind of take a fresh view on the world. Um, yeah. They're generally without ambition, mm-hmm. kind of simple, down to earth, um, just kind of mentality and pleasures. I don't know. I feel like the, the War of the Ring needs heroes with innocence and with a mm. with a clear mm-hmm. view, if I can borrow a phrase from on fairy stories. Oh. Yeah, and I recovery. think the Hobbits provide yeah. that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they don't even need the recovery. That is, they already see things in this case that with way, that level yeah. of clarity. Yeah. 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 That, that's a good point. I mean, I, I may have said that a naivete is not something that they can take credit for, but it certainly is a necessary truth for these heroes. It's It there did help yeah. them. It yeah. absolutely helped them. It is part of Hobbit nature. It's just not something that the Hobbits can take credit for. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. It's yeah. not like they've intentionally <laughs> kept no. themselves naive. It's not. No. Yeah. Yeah, but by it, burying it our head in the sands, we won't yes. fear anything because <laughs> right. we'll just assume everybody's okay. And we've said many times, and I think I especially have said, you know, this is not usually a good thing that they bury their heads in the sand. But uh, it's certainly guess, helpful here. Guess sometimes it works out. Yeah. Yes, it does. Well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Please be sure to join us again next week when Fatty makes us both scared of forests. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Fredegar, he's missed out on so much. Yes, he has. But folks, thanks again for listening, and thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of this conversation, and it doesn't stop when the episode ends. So you can see the comments, the questions, corrections, and more on Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And as always, a very special thank you to our patrons at the Cure Dance Contribution Tier. That's DeMay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, and Chad in Texas. Thank you all. Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, your bath songs to Barliman at theprancingponypodcast.com. Can't wait to hear those. Uh, no videos, I'm please. Expect- just I'm the text. I'm expecting some Mariah Carey and, you know... Stuff like that. Just oh no, these have to be original like bath songs to qualify. Okay, really well, I'm do. glad you. I'm glad you clarified that because. And, yeah, we'll and as get... pointed out before, just to repeat, not in video format. Please. Thank you. Please send them to Barliman at the Prancing Pony Podcast.com and we'll try to get them into our next show. <laughs> there you go. Well, however long we've had, it is still far too short a time, as always, to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. 